thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast on 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. Leadsa.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Riddy Clappy. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. Chris, what a pleasure to have you with us again. Good morning. Good morning and happy Christmas, everybody. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. As, uh, Thomas is already in the Christmas spirit and uh, he, he started celebrating long before all of us did because, you know, we, we get people sending us cookies and chocolates and I always pass them on to him. And, uh, well, I'll leave the rest to your imagination. Has Thomas got a Father Christmas hat? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised it if it's Should be compulsory always. studio uh, accoutrement. Don't Maybe give, someone could send him one, I don't know. Don't give him ideas, Chris, don't give him ideas. Now, Chris, I'm hearing some good news. We're all quite anxious about the future of uh, the Naked Scientist on the BBC. What's the latest? Ah, well, the latest there is that having had an overwhelmingly big response from the public, the BBC are unaxing our programme. Uh, there was a, a claim that they were intending to remove our programming from some of the radio stations that take it, and specifically the local radio stations, because we have a, a program broadcast nationally, and that's not under threat. But there are some pr- versions of the program that are aired on local radio stations, and they reach a very different audience to the national programming. And they're important because the kinds of people who are reached and accessed by those programs mm-hmm. are the average person who doesn't necessarily have a very high education and doesn't have access to lots of books and and important things where the person who listens nationally would do and so having some kind of educational programming that helps them understand the world around them was very important or at least it was important to us and clearly to them too because the bbc just wanted to replace it with a music show Uh, that that decision has been reversed and we'll be carrying on in january there'll be a proper formal announcement from the bbc probably later this uh, week Mm-hmm. Wonderful. We're delighted to hear that. And I know a well, lot we, of Well, we were delighted too, but it, it, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's people voting with their mouse fingers and their telephones and their pens. And, and it shows the BBC did listen. And, uh, and it shows what you can, you can achieve with a uh, popular groundswell these days. Mm. All right. Let, let's talk about this. About 100 people fall victim worldwide to uh, the, the jellyfish family, the, po- the, the lethal, uh, the poison uh, stemming from jellyfish. And now what scientists have discovered how to block this action? Yes, there's a certain family of jellyfish. They're called the box jellyfish. And they're best known for living in the mangrove swamps in Queensland in northern Australia. But actually they inhabit a much wider territory than that. They go right around the Philippines and even Hawaii has cases of box jellyfish envenomation. 
there's a number of members of this family. Some of the best known include Chironix Fleckeri, and this is after a Mr. Flecker who lived in Queensland, and he caught one of these jellyfish and proved that they're nasty by inducing it to sting him in front of a witness. I don't know how he came off in the end, actually, but uh, they do produce very painful stings, but very often lethal stings. But then no one knows exactly or did know exactly why they're lethal. And now two researchers from Hawaii, this is Angel Yanagihara and Ralph Shohei, have got a paper in PLOS One, that's the journal, mm -hmm. and they have come up with a new way of extracting the venom from the jellyfish tentacles. And producing very high purity, high concentration venom has enabled them to study in detail how the venom works. And it's intriguing. So what they did was to take samples of freshly donated human blood and then mix some of the venom in with it to start with and they found that the potassium levels went shooting up and when they looked carefully they found that the venom proteins assemble into a little pore shaped structure that drills a hole into the walls of the blood cells allowing all of the potassium that's normal inside them to leach out into the bloodstream and this has the effect of elevating the potassium level to well beyond what's a tolerable level and when you have very high potassium in the blood, it causes mm -hmm. the heart to stop. And when they did tests on mice, they found that indeed, if you take the echo, the electrocardiogram of the mice, you see that as the venom goes in, very quickly the potassium level goes up. The ECG, the, the cardiac trace on the mice, shows signs of very high potassium toxicity, and then the mice have a cardiac arrest. <laughs> so that tells us how the, how the venom works. The next step was to say, well, can they stop it? And they then just started trying various chemicals that they had around in the lab, mm -hmm. including one called zinc gluconate. And this is a sugar molecule which is associated with a zinc atom. And when this was injected, they found that the potassium level didn't rise in the same trajectory that it did in the absence of the zinc, and that animals could be kept alive for indefinitely or may maybe much longer if they kept infusing them with zinc. It would appear that zinc ions can block the ability of the venom proteins to assemble into these pores that damage cells. And they're suggesting that this is better, in fact it's superior in its performance, to the natural anti-venom that can be obtained clinically. And also, it's very cheap. So that's a major bonus, and it looks like it could buy enormous amounts of time to help people get to hospital and get their potassium level controlled mm -hmm. before their heart consequences kick in. And this is a serious problem because there are several hundred deaths maybe per year from uh, box jellyfish envenomation uh, annually. So yeah, this is a cheap, and very accessible and very easy to administer remedy potentially. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Chris. Let's go straight to the lines then on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Okay, we'll take this call because she's nine, I think. Jessica, hi. Hello, Reedy. Hello, darling. Um, I just wanted to ask if the world is really going to end today. Why do you want to know that, baby? Because on the 23rd of December is my birthday, and I'm kind of disappointed because can't I wait a few more days till my birthday? <laughs> <laughs> I think they can. For you, anything. <laughs> the world's not going to end, okay? Thank you. You're going to enjoy your 10th birthday and grow up to be a beautiful big girl and make your mom and dad proud. The world is not ending. Thank you. Happy birthday, hey? Thank you, Edith. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Happy birthday, Jessica. <laughs> Let's go to, is it Horst in Albertsville? Hi, it's Horst here, yeah. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to ask the scientist, please, 
when they were building the Egyptian pyramids, everybody is guessing what they, how they did it. Could they have used uh, uh, the magnetic field of the Earth to transport these things and to build them? Hello, horse. No, I don't think they would have used the magnetic field of the Earth because each of the blocks from which the pyramids are created, these are enormous stone cubes. And there's no way that the Earth's magnetic field could move those around. But unless you mean in terms of orientating them, because one of the things that the pyramids are characteristic for is that they are very well oriented in terms of their north-south alignment and so on. So they all seem to line up. And so not only are they a feat of, of that sort of planning, but also the geometry is incredible. I think that what the ancient Egyptians did was probably to use patterns of, excuse me, patterns of stars to uh, achieve those sorts of alignments because they, they do appear to line up with certain celestial bodies. And also they had enormous manpower. So they would have dragged these things from a long way away in some cases, uh, using huge numbers of people, and they had people chopping or hacking stone out of out of the uh, rock and then putting these things probably onto rollers uh, or wooden sledges and then dragging them using their manpower to where they needed to deploy them. Thank you so much, Horst. Let's go to Peter in Brackenfell. Hi. Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. I want to find out what is the difference between uh, dry heat and, uh, and humidity. To me, it feels this is not the same. It feels this is hot. How do you, how do you tell the difference? Mm, I thought hu uh, humid heat was even hotter. But anyway, Chris? Hello, Peter. Well, what is happening when we talk about humidity is we're measuring how much water is present in the atmosphere. And the way that the human body controls its heat, or its level of heat, its temperature, is by sweating. And how sweating works is that you produce a small amount of water on the skin surface, and that water evaporates, and as it evaporates, it takes what's called latent heat of vaporization. It takes energy away, because in order to turn a liquid from a liquid into a gas, you've got to break bonds in other words, associations between the water molecules. And to break bonds takes energy. So as those bonds are broken and the water molecules go off as vapour into the air, they take energy away from the body so your overall temperature drops. But what drives the rate of evaporation is how much water is already in the air because there is what we call a dynamic equilibrium going on. In order for water to leave the body, there must be less water in the air than there is on the body surface. If there's more water in the air than there is on the body surface, then more water is going to try to condense on the body surface than leaves the body. So the more humid it is, the harder it is for water to evaporate from the body. And therefore, if it's very dry and hot, then you can sweat very efficiently as long as you have lots of water. And this will keep carrying the energy away from the body and keep your temperature under control. But if it's very humid, then it's much harder for the water to leave the body surface, taking the energy away. And for this reason, uh, it feels a lot hotter, or at least it, you do get a lot hotter. And that's why in a sauna, if you put lots and lots of water on the coals in the sauna, it's much harder to, sw well, it's much, it's much harder to lose that energy because the water is so saturated in the atmosphere. Thank you very much, uh, Peter. And uh, we go straight to Craig. Craig, you're calling us from Craig Hall. Good morning. Yeah, morning, guys. I think the answer is quite simple. I suspect it is not be embarrassed if it is. But when you turn on a hot water tap for the first time um, in the morning, for argument's sake, the water runs quite strongly. But as the water heats up, 
the progression of water slows down. Mm. Why is that? Oh, yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> Craig? Yes. Yeah, hello, Craig. I think what's happening here is that the way a tap works is that you have a, a barrel with a screw plunger inside the barrel. And as you turn the tap, the barrel is, uh, sorry, the screw plunger is drawn up inside the barrel and water goes underneath it and what it bottoms out or ends on is a big rubber washer. So the, the plunger inside hits the rubber washer, cutting off the flow, and when you unscrew the tap, you lift up that piece of metal inside and the rubber washer and the thing separate and water goes through. Now, because the rubber is being compressed by the plunger inside when the tap is closed and it spends most of its time closed, the rubber washer gets compressed. But as the water flows through, the rubber begins to expand again and when the heat comes through in the hot water, it makes the rubber get bigger. And this has the effect of occluding or blocking the flow of water until you open the tap a little bit more. And that's why. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. 13 minutes to 10 o'clock. We have Chris on the line from the UK. Any questions that you have for him? We're stripping science down to its bare essentials. Let's go to David. David in Cape Town. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Doctor. Could you please tell me why the lights of a city twinkle at night? Oh, and the Hello, indoor David. lights don't, eh? Okay, all right, Chris. <laughs> Hello, David. The reason that lights twinkle from a distance is owing to the fact that light travels at a different speed in media of different densities. In other words, when light comes to us through the air, when it goes from a patch of air which is cooler to a patch of air that is warmer, the light changes speed. In fact, it speeds up a little bit. And when the light changes speed, it also is caused to curve. And so when the light eventually reaches your eye, it's come through air that's made it twist and turn all over the place. And this means that your eye thinks that the light source must be moving. And this has the effect of making the light appear to twinkle because the brightest parts of the light dance around a little bit in a random way making the lights appear to be twinkling. It's the same reason that stars twinkle in the night sky. The light coming through the atmosphere passes through patches of warmer and relatively colder air, making the light increase and decrease its speed, respectively, and that has the effect of bending the, air, uh, the passage of the light very slightly and making you think the stars are twinkling. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, Chris, he, he had told my producer, uh, David had told my producer that uh, he, it was the twinkling of the lights, uh, uh, the city lights outdoors, but the indoor lights uh, don't seem to have the same quality. Well, I would think it would be very difficult for you to be able to see that. Um, I would only think that from a distance they're all going to look the same whereas when you're close up obviously the indoor lights are close to you so they're not passing through enough air to make this effect appear to happen but it's certainly down to the fact that the light is changing speed that's making the twinkling phenomenon let's go to Tsiho in Kempton Park can you hear me? Um, how come human beings can talk and animals can't? human beings can talk and they have a voice and animals can't how old are you Tsiho? Seven. Seven. Okay, Chris, there we go. The kids love you. <laughs> Hello. Oh, this is fantastic. Uh, I should get my daughter on. She'll probably <laughs> put herself on in a minute. Uh, <laughs> well, this is a unique human trait as far as we know, the way that we actually use language. Animals make sounds, and they make sounds in a very similar way 
that we do. So they have a larynx, like a voice box, and they can make, make it vibrate by bringing air up from their lungs, and those vibrations make sounds, and many animals make sounds. But we as humans appear to be unique in having the ability to control those sounds in a way that will produce a very distinctive language that other humans can understand, or at least animals that can make sounds that that communicate in this way don't appear to have the same detail uh, in terms of the information that they can convey that we do. This almost certainly is a reflection on our brain because language takes up a very big chunk of brain on the left-hand side of your brain and we seem to have this uh, asymmetry in our brain. One side is not as not equal to the other, which makes this possible. In the majority of humans, language is on the left-hand side of the brain, and there's an area called Broca's area, and another region called Wernicke's area, that decode and encode, or I should put that the other way around, actually, to be accurate, they encode and decode language, respectively. And animals don't seem to have this asymmetry, in the same way that humans are right-handed 90% of the time. That reflects the fact that our left brain is dominant, and that's where language is. So there seems to be uh, a a change that happened probably quite early on in our evolution that enlarged our brain, gave it this asymmetry and gave it the capacity to control our larynx and our airflow the way that we can to produce language in the detailed way that we can so that we can communicate the way we can and then one thing begot the other. The huge benefit of being able to communicate with in detail using language between ourselves meant that people who had those abilities got even better at using those abilities and that trait was selected during evolution and as a result we've become extremely good at using language today. Thank you very much. Suho Imaka in Pretoria, hi. Uh, hello, already. Mm. I wanted to know how a couple can increase their chance of having twins. Okay. Ooh. Well, one thing they could do is have some sex, <laughs> because you've got to have sex to have babies. <laughs> Chris. Um, so, so that would work. But in terms of actually twins, the chances of a couple having twins, uh, there's a 1 in 75 chance that uh, pregnancy will end in twins. And I think there's a 1 in 75 squared chance that a couple will have triplets. Mm -hmm. But how you can actually make it happen, well, there's not really a natural way to make it happen. They do appear to happen more commonly in families and s who have a lot of twins. So if you have a family history of having twins, then there's a likelihood that you'll have a slightly higher rate that that will happen again. Most of the time, though, it, it just happens to be something that happens just, just by chance. And, and so therefore, there isn't really a way to influence that. Medically, you can certainly influence it because assisted conception when you give uh, drugs that can induce ovulation sometimes there have been women who've ended up with huge numbers of babies because drugs are given to help them to have babies and it makes the ovaries produce lots and lots of eggs and they can all get fertilized and so you can have multiple pregnancies so there are drug ways of doing it and and then there's the family history way of doing it and then there's the fact that you you need to be having sex with someone uh, to have at least uh, a one in at least something chance yeah. of having twins good luck to you Marka. good luck i'm sure that will be loads of fun let's go to louise in melville hi good morning lady mm. I'd like to know, the other day I stepped on a snail, and by the morning, if the, all the gooey stuff was gone, what happened to that snail? Oh, hi, Louise. Uh, were you walking around in the dark? Yeah, at night. Yeah, that happens to me, because you, you know when you've done it, because there's that sort of oh, crunch yeah. squelch, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's a sort of crunch squelch, crunch squelch. 
What I think's probably happened is that either birds have come down, because birds love snails, they're very protein-rich and tasty for birds, or ants. Ants love meat, uh, or high-protein intake too, and they will find it and cart it all away. So I suspect that uh, it's a number of things. Ants, birds, and probably other uh, small animals as well, rodents especially, will be very partial to a snail if they can get one. Thank you very much, Louise. Stay away from those snails now. Robinson in Pretoria. Morning, guys. Uh, Chris, my question is uh, regarding diabetes. In a few weeks ago, I was watching a TV program, Crime Scene Investigation, and they were questioning the witness to crime. The only thing that you could say about the suspect was that the guy had a street body odor. And uh, the investigators were trying to think what could be this guy suffering from, and they came up with uh, diabetes. Diabetes? Yes. And I'm also diabetic. What I've noticed is that sometimes about once a month or so, my urine has a strong odor, which smells like uh, bacon. Is there any connection between diabetes and the... And body odor. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, one of the things that can happen with diabetes, and we should be clear here, diabetes is when you don't have enough of the hormone insulin, and insulin is a blood glucose lowering chemical. It puts sugar into your cells, and without it, you can't get enough sugar into your cells, and so the body interprets that as, I must be starving. So one reason why people may develop a smell or at least an odour when they are diabetic, and it's not an unpleasant odour at all, is if they have what's called ketoacidosis. When you don't have enough sugar, the body instead turns to fat for its energy source. And when you break up fats, you produce what are called ketone bodies, and ketone bodies smell like pear drops. And you can tell if someone who is diabetic hasn't had enough uh, insulin, they do start to maybe sometimes get woozy or sleepy and they can develop this very sweet smell like acetone. Acetone is an example of a ketone body. And so people who are starving hungry can also develop these uh, odours as well, but diabetics are are more prone to this. And it might have been that in that film someone was smelling those sweet pear droppy smells coming off the diabetic person that made them think, is this individual diabetic? I'm not sure why urine would smell other than when you have diabetes, if the sugar goes above about 10, then it can filter into the urine because the kidney can't get all of the sugar back. And it can then end up with uh, more sugar in the urine than you should have. And this can encourage microorganisms sometimes to grow. And that can sometimes impart smell. So people can get urine infections or yeast infections for that reason. And I'm not sure whether those ketones can also filter. They certainly ooze out through the skin. I'm not sure if they can come out in the urine. And that might also give a smell to urine as well. Hmm, very interesting. I didn't know that. All right, Chris, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I'll see you next year. Well, I hope so. Thanks, everybody, and uh, have a great Christmas and New Year, and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And, of course, this conversation with Chris will be available as a podcast. Just download it from our website around lunchtime, Thomas. Is that okay for you? Just after 1 o'clock, you'll find the Naked Scientist uh, web, uh, podcast. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.